0: Hello and welcome to the Library Cafe, a weekly program about books, research, and the formation and circulation of knowledge. I'm Thomas Hill. I'm very delighted to have, as a return guest on the show, Leah Price. Leah is a distinguished professor of English at Rutgers University, and she's also founder and director of the Rutgers Initiative for the Book. Welcome back, Leah.
1: Thank you for having me again as a repeat offender, and um, (laughs) it's lovely to see this long-running podcast for a second time.
0: I've interviewed a few of your former colleagues there at Harvard, Ann Blair, one of them, really wonderful interviews, uh, and Jeffrey Schnapp. So we're here to talk about your new book, which coincidentally and perhaps self-referentially is entitled What We Talk About When We Talk About Books, published by Basic Books earlier this year. But before we move on to the book, I wanted to ask you about how you are talking about books at Rutgers and the Rutgers Initiative for the Book Program. Can you tell us about the program?
1: Absolutely. Thank you for giving me that opening for some shameless uh, promotion of the new program. The Rutgers Book Initiative is an attempt to bring together the teaching of book history with more hands-on kinds of Book making. Uh So we are starting a maker space for bookish activities ranging from paper making to printing to, although this one I'm still figuring out, fabricating type using a 3D printer and of course binding and zine making and various other bookish activities. And we're also starting a graduate certificate In book history that can be added on to a PhD in pretty much any field, so not Uh just history and language departments, but it could be an information science degree, it could be a degree in the humanistic social sciences, and part of the idea of that is really to get students talking to people in other disciplines about the different uses to which bibliographic methods can be put depending on what your home discipline is.
0: It sounds wonderful. I've often been an advocate of actually having graduate programs fold into them, you know, what you get in library science courses in terms of the material culture of the documentary record, because it's so important. I mean, I'm a medievalist, and, you know, you can't really study medieval texts without studying the material culture, and, you know, it should be that way with everyone anymore. So, uh, yeah, it sounds great. And then the practical side, too, is interesting.
1: Well, and I agree that that kind of knowledge is unevenly distributed across time, place. Specializations Medievalists, in that sense, have been speaking book history all their lives, but people who work on more modern periods seem much more varied in their relation to the material text.
0: Yeah, they don't always think about it. Rutgers has a library science program, too, doesn't it? So you must get people from that interested, I would hope.
1: It does, and that's part of what's interesting about the meeting of uh, people who come at this field from a very different angles and who are also planning to put it to very different uses after they emerge from the program. Uh
0: Uh-huh, yeah, sounds wonderful. Perfect idea, actually. Maybe it'll be a model for other institutions. This is a book with a much wider historical focus than your How to Do Things with Books in Victorian Britain that we talked about last time you were on the show, in that you move into the 20th and even 21st century and their reading cultures, including the culture of digital books. And the question is, is this a natural move? And I asked because I assume historians always feel the pull of the present moment and will be naturally tempted to wish to bring memory and history into play in addressing present and future problems.
1: Implicitly or explicitly, historians are always working backward from uh-huh. the pull of the present moment. Uh-huh. And one of the aims of what we talked about when we talked about books was to counter the kind of narcissism of presentism, Uh which assumes either that things are getting better every day in every way, Uh (laughs) or more often, I think, within the humanities, that things are getting worse every way, every day, and that we live in a particularly problematic maybe a moment in which it is particularly hard to engage in deep, sustained focused reading. And so part of what I tried to show in what we talk about when we talk about books is that these anxieties about how to read and what those reading styles suggest about the moral worth of the people performing them have been around for a very long time just in different forms, and specifically I tried to show a kind of historical reversal Hmm. in which the very activity that now we lie to as an antidote to the ills of our digital age, that is the sustained reading of Mm long-form printed literature, was seen as recently as the 19th century, as itself the source of distractibility, Uh. impatience, laziness, and Mm -hmm. a lack of moral fiber. (laughs) So that what now is framed as the cure was quite recently framed as the
0: disease. It's so funny, you know. Your book has a comic thread that runs through it, really, a comical thread. An irony, certainly, about that. So uh, as historical artifacts books transmit documentary evidence, of course, but they also preserve and transmit memory in other ways, You know, one of which is archaeologically, you could say, through their presence as physical evidence. And I wonder if you can talk about your approach to book history as material history and, and how this plays out in your teaching, particularly.
1: That invocation of archaeology is interesting because, of course, we tend to talk about book history, we tend not to talk about book archaeology, uh-huh. and yet I think you're right that... In its focus on the material object, many strands of book history have more in common with archaeological methods. In terms of teaching, I talk in what we talk about when we talk about books about an exercise that I often do with undergraduates in the form of a game called Name That Book, Uh where a volunteer, a student who volunteers, is blindfolded. And they then stumble to the nearest bookshelf. We do this exercise in a library. They pull a volume down from the shelf, and the other students in the class call out questions to them, as in a game of 20 questions, about what the book feels like and sounds like and smells like in order to help the blindfolded book holder figure out what kind of book it is that they are holding in their hands. And what's remarkable about this exercise is that it shows you how much you can tell about a book without ever reading it or even looking at it. Uh I've tried this exercise sometimes with books in a language that none of the students know, but even when you're not reading the alphabetic characters, you can still cheat, as it were, by looking at other visual aspects of the book. This exercise is partly a way to try to get us beyond the... Exclusive focus on information processed through the visual uh-huh. sense yeah. that tends to characterize a lot of our relation to books. So it's a way of estranging the book and waking up all of the other senses with which we can apprehend this object, beginning with very simple minded questions like how heavy is the book? Mm-hmm. Is it hard to hold in your hand? Does it seem like a book that you would need to rest on a piece of furniture or like a book that you could slip into your pocket? Although Mm -hmm. I suppose since I'm talking to a librarian here, I shouldn't talk about slipping library books (laughs) into your pocket. But what's the form factor
2: of the book?
0: Yeah, we've had Nick Adams on talking about architectural books and the importance of certain books that came out actually in small format so architects could take them to the sites that they were working on, uh, you know, being a big part of the story of that particular publication. Can you give me a few examples then of what kinds of books that you hand your students in this way and what they're able to tell? Well, I don't hand books
1: to them because it's, a kind of exercise in bibliomancy. They pull uh-huh. down a book from the shelf. Oh, they do. When, okay. when I, there are two versions of this game. One involves a blindfolded student pulling a book down from the shelf. The other involves, in preparation for the game, covering the books over with tape or construction paper mm-hmm. so that the cover can't be seen and then showing them to students from a distance. Uh-huh. And with that version of the exercise, I often use a telephone book, because even 18-year-olds can still recognize a yellow pages. Mm -hmm. And I often use a road atlas, which may connect with what you're saying about architectural books, because atlases are one of these genres that vary wildly in size. There's the kind of thing that you can put in your pocket when you go hiking, and there's also the kind of thing that you need to spread out to get a sense of the shape of the world, and the latter tend to be wire-bound. And so one of the first things that students often do with a road atlas, even students, again, who have been using TPS on smartphones all their life, mm-hmm. they will run their fingers along the spine and hear that distinctive noise made by a finger running along a metal spiral binding. I wish I had one here because I could create a sound effect for your listeners.
0: There's a joke, you know, that comes to my mind a lot recently. You know, Adam and Eve are walking along after the expulsion, and Eve is downcast, you know, because they have been thrown out of Eden. And Adam leans over and says, Don't despair, my dear. We live in an age of transition. Uh, and that's <laughs> but anyway, we do actually live in an age of transition, and your book, to some extent, focuses on you know that transition in the age, uh, and especially on digital reading and e-books. E-books are still with us, but perhaps the first wave of fear and prognostications about their effect on culture in general has washed past us without having swept away printed books. And there were indeed a lot of books produced recently about the death of the book and all that it represents beginning at least with Sven Burkert's Gutenberg Elegies, and I think there were other texts uh, published perhaps a bit earlier. Can you talk about e-books and the kinds of changes that they have brought about? And can looking at the wider picture, the historical picture, or the wider social picture offer us any guidance here?
1: You know, when you say e-books, I think most listeners would probably think either of the kind of electronic books purchased through Amazon Mm -hmm to be accessed through the Kindle software or of the kind of older and still going strong open access e-books promulgated through organizations like Project Gutenberg. Mm-hmm, yeah. And both of those are clearly very significant, although the significance of both, and in particular the device on which they're accessed, seems to vary widely depending on what country you're looking at. Mm-hmm. So, that ebooks in that sense were fairly quick to catch on in much of East Asia where smartphone penetration was early, and still
2: mm-hmm.
1: one of the places where ebooks are likeliest to be read, not on a dedicated e reader like the Kindle, but on a phone is in Japan, mm-hmm. where there's also a very large body of not just born digital, but born cell phone literature produced
2: mm-hmm.
1: to be read on the small screen. In much of continental Europe, ebooks are still likelier to be read on a laptop, mm-hmm. and it's in the anglophone world that dedicated e-readers, like various kinds of Kindle, along with tablets, are the default device for accessing this kind of long-form electronic text. So one thing to say would be that the ebook isn't a single thing. It's many file formats accessed through many devices. And the other thing to say would be that the form in which most Americans today access long-form electronic text through a digital device is actually none of those. It's a quite different format that people rarely think about when we talk about e-books, which is the audiobook,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh-huh. the MP three. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I think one of the historical surprises that we've encountered in the past couple of decades, since the early days of electronic reading is that way back in the 20th century, if you can remember that far, <laughs> people were prognosticating the rise of hyperfiction, uh-huh. the rise of various kinds of metafiction uh-huh. driven by all kinds of fancy hyperactive hyperlinking. And what's happened in the end is almost the opposite. The form in which most Americans encounter long-form texts in some kind of digital file format, is the audiobook, which is significantly less hyper than Uh the codex. Uh That is, where a codex can be searched, browsed, you can go backwards in a codex, you can look for a particular page in a codex, you can search the index in a codex. An audiobook is in many ways more restrictive and simpler and more linear than a codex. You can really only go forward. And this seems like one of the many cases in technological history where people assume at first that more is better, that people want the more complicated, fancier format with more capabilities. But in fact, what consumers end up choosing is something simpler and more limited they don't want that range of choices and I know for myself one of the things that I love about the audiobook is the fact that it's difficult to take notes because Uh as a professional reader with the occupational deformation of writing in the margins of everything I read I love the feeling of just having a novel Uh washed over me Uh because I'm listening to it in audiobook form and I can't go back and check something I can't Uh skim. I can't skip I just have to listen at an even pace. Yeah, and yeah. I don't know whether that's also the case with the podcast, but certainly a podcast like yours would seem to have more in common with an audio book than with a print book.
0: Yeah, no, it certainly does. People have often asked me about indexing passages, that kind of thing, but it would be just too overwhelming to do it. I don't think you'd want to necessarily access it that way anyway. So, yeah, it does free you up from having to take notes, which I think it was Derrida who talked about note-taking as being a form of erasure of the text, in a sense. Yeah. And uh, and also, you have to then use your memory also, if you want to remember a passage, to, to go back and listen to it again, so... Yeah, interesting. So what about this sort of myth of progress we still live by? I mean, I grew up in the end of the 20th century when everything was progress, was the thing we all believed in. So the myth is that things are not just different than they used to be, but they are getting better. And you meditate in your chapter called Reading on the Move on Edward Lanning's great mural in the New York Public Library that is entitled The Story of the Recorded Word that depicts this sort of optimistic assessment of writing and reading. It is about progress progress. It was done as part of the uh, Works Progress Administration under Roosevelt was one of those murals. And I wonder then, can you talk about that mural and about that sort of grand narrative of progress in intellectual technology in Western history?
1: That's an interesting question, because I think you're right that the progress in WPA becomes very literal mm-hmm. in Lanning's mural, which is known to anyone who's used the New York Public Library. It's a sequence that begins with Moses with the tablets of the law, and there you get a real sense of the physicality of this supersized crunch of stone. You can see Moses's muscles clenching mm. and his fingers playing to support the weight of this tablet. Though you also see in the mural shards of stone at Moses' feet, which remind us that although stone is more monumental than paper, it's also paradoxically, under certain circumstances, less durable because it doesn't have the tensile strength that allows a web of cellulose to bend without breaking. And then we go on to a monk hunched over a Lectern, mm-hmm. a certain image of medieval writing practices with which I imagine you might take all kinds of yeah. issue and I'd be yeah, interested yeah, exactly. to hear what those issues are. And then we arrive finally to a 15th century German marketplace where Gutenberg is flanked by a burly pressman with the uh, proof sheet of a Bible. And mm. finally we end up in New York with a copy of the New York Tribune uh-huh, uh-huh. printed in linotype. And there's one kind of visual footnote in the form of a much smaller image of a doorway of a mother teaching her son uh-huh. to read. Uh-huh. This is the only female figure in this otherwise sweeping panorama of Civilization and the idea seems to be so often that women are involved only as a means to the end
2: mm-hmm. of
1: transmitting literacy to the next generation of men. But yes, I would be interested in your take on that. Image of the monk
0: hunched over the lectern. Oh, I was just downstairs in special collections looking at 14th century manuscripts. I also facsimiles of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales with a group of students. And the very first question that Ron Patkus, our librarian, asked the students was uh, how they. Thought these manuscripts were made, and of course, they all had this image of the monk hunched over the lectern, and that they were made in monasteries. But he pointed out that that was not so much the case toward the later Middle Ages after the 12th, 13th century, that most manuscripts were produced in workshops of various kinds, not by the church and not by monks. So, yeah, so it's, you know, it's kind of an icon for the transmission of knowledge out of the classical world. But that whole myth for me is very problematic. It privileges antiquity. I'm a medievalist. And then it privileges what follows, the Renaissance, and it makes the Middle Ages uh, basically some sort of dark period where what learning there was was transmitted by scribes who probably didn't understand what they were transcribing. It's an old-fashioned idea of the Middle Ages, I think. It doesn't quite hold anymore. But I do like that one little vignette of the woman reading there to the child because I do have myself, I don't know if I'm kind of riffing here, I do have myself a notion that culture is is transmitted by women especially to other women and to their children. I can't think of the name of the film that I'm thinking of. It was a film with Shirley MacLaine and Jack Nicholson where Shirley plays a mother whose daughter has uh, got cancer, I think a fatal disease and Jack Nicholson has a man who's interested in Shirley MacLaine here. She's an ex-astronaut and the whole film is about the transmission of culture from mother to daughter because the mother owns I think a Picasso that she's handing down Tour, and it becomes an important theme in the sort of a backstory there. So anyway, my eye also lights on that little vignette there in that mural.
1: That's fascinating. So that would suggest it's not just about the transmission of literacy, but other forms of cultural competency.
0: Yeah, very much. And then there's the other myth. I mean, it's the myth of progress we all live with, but then there's another great myth, and that's the myth of the Golden Age, I suppose. Uh, So it's another story about not the evolution of culture, but the devolution of culture. You know, the Golden Age here is that time when mothers used to read to children from library books and that that's a thing of the past and that we need to recover whatever is left of that. World. The more technology takes this kind of world away from us, so and then we tie this into what you call the myth of the self-made reader. You know, the self-made person. You know, Horatio Alger. Where we drop the mothering and we treat reading as a, you know an exercise in self-reliance. We feel we have a lot to whine about. You know, a lot's been lost. The question is, does this myth make any more or less sense than the uh, you know, myth of progress? As you do talk about it, this devolution and, and this you know this kind of anger or frustration. people Feel about technology.
1: Um, well, just to be clear, that phrase, the myth of the self made reader, I quote it from the wonderful analyst of books, Matthew Battles, uh-huh. who is himself a librarian, yeah. and is talking in part about the way in which librarians are written out of uh-huh. the record, which is something that I think we see even occasionally in scholarly work when the scholar talks about stumbling over undiscovered manuscript, yeah. <laughs> and usually the reason they were able to stumble over it was because some librarian, librarian yeah. <laughs> made it discoverable. Yes. So one of the reasons that this myth of the self-made reader it seems to me harmful is, it happens not to be true, that I think it's so short the book's capacity to link readers.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Some of your listeners may have read Eric Kleinenberg's recent book on infrastructure, where he talks about public libraries as places where Americans often shelter during the increasingly frequent natural disasters. Mm -hmm. That public libraries are one of the few places that welcome all citizens, and in fact, all people who are not citizens. Some of the librarians that I talk about in this book in Berlin got together very early on in the current migrant crisis in Europe
2: Mm
1: -hmm. to declare that libraries in Berlin are open to everyone, whatever their documentation status. And this seems like a tremendously powerful political statement Mm -hmm. about the civic role of libraries in creating a sense of belonging that is symbolic as well as extremely useful for new arrivals who need internet access and all kinds of information. And I contrast this to the position of the 19th century librarians after the foundation of public libraries in Britain starting in the 1850s, which is when a law was passed allowing local governments to charge taxpayers to support publicly funded libraries Mm -hmm. rather than private-for-profit circulating libraries that had more in common, perhaps, with subscription services like Spotify. Mm -hmm. And these librarians were extremely worried about the potential for readers of different social classes Um. to rub shoulders with one another, Mm. not just in the reading room where the concern was what if some nice middle-class lady is sitting next to some working-class guy who doesn't smell nice, but also transitively, they were worried about the problem of library patrons handling books that had previously been handled by other library patrons of different social classes. And this is why librarians in the late 19th century invented various kinds of book fumigators, which are essentially uh-huh. a sort of gas chamber of books where you insert a book into this fumigator after it's been returned so that. Nice middle class library patrons don't have to uh, be infected by the diseases yeah. <laughs> of God knows yeah. who was handling the book yeah. previously.
0: I had a library science teacher actually that once warned his students, in his first year library science, about Merck's medical manuals. You know, She
2: <laughs> 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 needed, needed
0: to handle them gingerly. So, uh, so that you still had that in the twentieth century. But yeah, interesting, very interesting. The story of reading and books, of course has to do with wider social and economic frameworks and you and other book historians point out that modern economics and commercial practice has itself been heavily influenced by the book as a kind of innovative driver of the sort of larger economic machine of capitalism and I thought that was a fascinating passage because I hadn't read this sort of economic scholarship on the book until I came across your book here and it just seemed fascinating to me and of course Amazon is a a current example of the effect of the notion of a book as a commodity changing the way we do business but it goes back farther than that doesn't it? It
1: does and I think that another way in which we tend to idealize the printed book is that we think of The printed book is standing outside of or above the sordidness of the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And we contrast Uh the electronic book, which is so deeply entangled in Amazon's commercial ecosystem, Uh with the innocence of the printed book. But drawing on the work of the media historian Ted Tripper, I talk in what we talk about when we talk about books, using Curepuff's research about all the ways in which the printed book was both very dynamic and very innovative in Mm -hmm. its production and distribution methods. So that sometimes when we think about innovation in relation to the book, we think about manufacturing methods, we think about movable type, Mm -hmm. most of all. But Curepuff shows, I think, a quite... Uh, brilliantly, that some of the main innovations that the publishing industry has had to do with distribution, beginning with the fact that books were one of the first commodities to be sold on open shelves, to be browsable, uh-huh. rather than kept behind the counter. And then again, in the 19th century, books were one of the first commodities to be sold on consumer credit. So that before clothes were sold on layaway, before, in fact, the selling of real estate on credit got us into the economic mess that we're in today, books were sold on credit. Because their respectability allowed the selling of books on credit to diminish the stigma of debt that would otherwise mm. have been associated with buying objects hmm. that you couldn't afford to to pay for outright. So in that sense, you could say that books are just certainly responsible for the subprime mortgage
0: crisis. Very interesting. I haven't heard the word layaway, you know, since the early 1960s, I think so. (laughs) (laughs) My mother used to use it all the time. So So, apart from altering the way business operates or has operated, books also inform the very form of our social world. And you write, I think, more eloquently than anyone else I know about the way the materiality of reading has informed the very structure of the modern world and our place in it. For instance, looking at the historical period where your literary studies were rooted in the 19th century, you state that without books and newspapers, Victorians would never have invented the suburbs. And I thought it was just a fascinating statement. I wonder if you could elaborate on it a bit.
1: Yeah, so the... Commuter rail, which emerged primarily in Britain in the 19th century, was one of the first transportation infrastructures on which it was possible to read with relative comfort. Because mm-hmm. on most horse-propelled forms of transportation, first of all, there may not be enough light, and secondly, you may not have your hands free, and thirdly, if you try to read, you're going to get nauseous.
2: Mm.
1: Whereas one of the ways in which early promoters of new railway lines advertised their smoothness was to claim that the ride was so smooth, the suspension was so perfect, that a man could read a newspaper with perfect mm. comfort, according quoting oh. one uh, mid-19th century advertisement there. And so one of the things that really reconciled 19th century commuters to the boredom of being Uh, stuck on a train for a very long time, thanks to the new suburbs that were growing up farther and farther away from cities along these uh, tentacles of train lines, was the fact that reading, whether a newspaper or the kind of novel sold in train stations under the title of Railway Novels, could while away the time. And I think we're seeing something similar today, again, in relation to the audiobook.
0: Oh, fascinating. I did all my reading almost, you know, when I was taking classes for my Ph.D. at Columbia on the train on Metro North, commuting back and forth between New York and Poughkeepsie, actually. It never occurred to me that actually the reading and the train were kind of born together in some way, you know, the commute. So, uh, and that is a great boon of being able to ride the train or an airplane as you have time to read. Just fascinating. So you actually had an encounter with the physicality of the book yourself in your personal life that you write about. You injured your back?
1: That's right. Just over a decade ago, Uh I had a back injury which, for one very unpleasant year, required me to spend most of my time lying on my back Mm -hmm. on the floor and... As with commuting, this would have been unbearable if I hadn't had something to do during that time. And there are a lot of activities in the world that are impossible to do while you lie on your back on the floor. Mm -hmm. One of those activities is reading a book in both hands, because if you try to lie on the back and hold the book in both hands, you soon find that your shoulders are working against gravity. Uh So I rigged up a kind of Rube Goldberg device using our glass coffee table, Uh whereby I would lie underneath the coffee table with the book Mm spread-eagled upside down facing toward me and through the glass coffee table, which I kept cleaner than I have ever (laughs) kept it before or since with the aid of industrial quantities of Windex, I was able to read. And this got me interested in the ergonomics of reading. So what Um, kinds of postures have people used to read? mm at different times and places, with different kinds of objects. How have changes in lighting technology and infrastructure affected that? And what is the difference between Books that are read in motion and Uh books that are read with the aid of a stationary piece of furniture. Uh
0: Uh-huh, surfaces, yeah. It was an interesting chapter, autobiographical, but uh, really enlightening. I think it added a lot to the book. Speaking of medical conditions, you have a chapter entitled Prescribed Reading, and you talk about bibliotherapy. So reading books hasn't always (laughs) been regarded as a road to health, mental or otherwise, has (laughs) it?
1: Um, no, I mean, that's one of the interesting novel qualities of books is that at different moments in their history, the reading in particular of long-form imaginative literature, especially novels, has sometimes been seen as a road to insanity. That was mm. certainly the case for much of the early modern period,
2: uh-huh.
1: right through the early 20th century. But today, various medical... And social nonprofits are trying to promote the reading of long form imaginative literature as a therapeutic
2: uh-huh.
1: tool and to suggest that fiction reading can calm people suffering from mild to moderate anxiety, mm-hmm. that it can help people suffering from depression construct a more hopeful life story, that it can provide models of overcoming adversity, and even that insomnia can be uh-huh. combated by turning to a printed book rather than to a device that emits blue light, uh-huh. such as a smartphone. And this last, I find myself deeply ambivalent about because the idea that a book will put you to sleep um, <laughs> yeah. has a strong
0: I have a hard time staying awake, actually, when I'm reading in bed. So it takes tremendous amounts of coffee, actually, just reading it reading itself. <laughs> I mean, they go together. I've often thought if I were to build a library, I would have two figurines at the door. One would be hypnose and then the other one would be sort of caffeine like you know, you know, a figure with coffee beans uh, seems, <laughs> seems, seems essential. So In Britain, the Natural Health Service is involved in the prescription of books for people, isn't it? I mean, it's actually actually prescribed by doctors reading it
1: is although this is not the reading of literature it's the reading of self help books
0: uh, oh, um, okay yeah. well that so will put it, you to sleep so
1: but there you could say that the delivery device more or less incidental it's uh-huh, not okay, about yeah. the effects of the medium the same content could be delivered by a smartphone or a video game or a photocopied leaflet.
0: And then there's, of course, prescribed reading for prisoners also as a form of rehabilitation. And the opposite of that, keeping texts away from prisoners, seems to be part of our modern world. I I come across stories of both a lot recently.
1: Well, that's an interesting point because the commonality in these otherwise... Opposite activities is the idea that part of what is taken away from prisoners is the autonomy to choose themselves whether to read and What to read and I think that highlights the extent to which what matters is not just the act of reading but the act of
0: choosing Uh a book uh, uh, Interesting very interesting I have friends these days who spend their recreational time reading for or participating in book clubs. It seems to be very popular these days. And and you have a chapter, Bound by Books, about the new social emphasis on reading that seems to be of moment. And I wonder, is this a new form of textual community?
1: That is a great term for it. And, Mm -hmm. of course, in some ways it's not new at all. Book clubs are a very old institution that was more important for the circulation of books before the mid-19th century foundation of those publicly supported libraries. Book Mm. clubs used to be one of the ways in which provincial gentry would get access to books because Mm. they would order books collectively and then circulate them in a kind of rotation. But I think it's that your question might get us back to our earlier discussion of the limitations of the myth of the self-made reader, Mm -hmm. and all the ways in which thinking of the archetypal reader as someone alone, as someone retreating into the book to get away from other people, doesn't do justice to the capacity of the book to connect Uh, different
0: people. uh Yeah, it is a kind of connective tissue can. Uh, Periodicals also, not just books. I know in the 19th century especially, there were whole clubs formed around certain kinds of periodicals. I mean, there were periodicals that were devoted to bicyclists and there were communities that were cultivated. So publishers used to do this, cultivate a readership through what they were publishing. Then there were working-class clubs, trade union clubs, that would cultivate a kind of political base in this way. And in a chapter, you also write about book activism. And we've all seen sort of little free libraries spring up on street corners, and uh, there was just a Facebook post on little free libraries turning up in laundromats in town here. And some of this activity is overtly political, like the libraries that were part of the Occupy Wall Street movement was a big part of that movement, where trading books it had a tinge of a kind of revolutionary activity, I think. And it had to do with community, especially, I think, in reading. So the question is, is this a good sign for reading or the future of the idea of the book, that you have this kind of notion that the communities that books help to cultivate are a good thing in and of themselves, and they show that the book has some kind of efficacy. That's the way I see it, that uh, that words are not not totally meaningless the way our president seems to think they are, so...
1: (laughs) Yes, and I do talk a little bit in the book about our president's reading habits, or at (laughs) least book-owning habits, which are better known than those of many more interesting readers, Uh um, simply because everything about him, except perhaps his tax returns, are so (laughs)
0: well-known. An open book, yes, yeah.
1: (laughs) Indeed, yes, I think you're pointing to an important... Utopian potential of uh-huh. the book, and you could almost see the book as having two quite different forms of utopian potential, one involving its power to symbolize a sort of solitary self sufficient interiority or selfhood, uh-huh. and the other being its power to serve as you said before as a kind of connective picu. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to keep both of those
0: in play. Yeah, it does seem to be a good sign in any case. Sort of on the downside, these book activists don't always seem to warm to English professors or literary critics, or even librarians actually, who regard themselves as professional book activists. I mean, we we tend to uh, public librarians, as you mentioned particularly. And you know, I wonder then, you know, on the opposite side, are these people onto something? I mean, does one have to be an amateur to appreciate the social power of reading? I suppose is the question should we be a threat?
1: Well, I think that one of the things I learned in the course of researching this book was that I had been working with much too crude a distinction between the professional and Uh. the amateur. That is, when Uh. literary critics think about the amateur, because we are fairly self-involved, we tend to think of the amateur as someone who is not a literary critic, Uh and yet There are so many professionals involved in the circulation of books, beginning, as you say, with librarians, who have different kinds of highly professional relations to the book, as is also the case for those bibliotherapists you mentioned Uh who are not professional literary critics or professional librarians or not primarily professional book people at all, and yet their relation to the book is a highly professionalized one. So I think that it may be useful to complicate this distinction between the professional and the amateur and to think of the book as an object that cuts across Uh that divide, Uh if only because those of us who are professional readers, whether as librarians or literary critics or publishers or booksellers, also tend to be amateur readers Uh In our spare time
0: Yeah, it's true, very true I have to say, when I finished my PhD One of the things that I did Was, because I hadn't had time to read for pleasure I went and bought up the whole collection of Rex Stout's Nero-Wolf mysteries and read them cover to cover.
2: <laughs> you know, could have
0: done it in a book club, actually. But So, last question. You've written books on secretaries and on Victorian and modern book culture now. Do you have any other book projects in the hopper for the future? Knowing you, I'm sure you do. You've got a research project of some kind going.
1: I do, but I will be brief. I'm uh, starting to work on the means by which children have been socialized for the past couple of centuries into not just the reading of books, that is, literacy, but also the handling of books, the owning of books, Uh and the circulation of books and so i am eager to learn more about that topic and hopefully to discuss it with some of your listeners
0: sounds wonderful there's a whole world of children's book aficionados and scholars out there so there's a lot of material i'm sure so sounds absolutely fascinating so we'll have to come back and do another program when you get the next book out (laughs) (laughs) setting us up So I'd like to thank you, Leah, for visiting with us today on the Library Cafe to talk about your book, what we talk about when we talk about books published by Basic Books in 2019.
1: I'm really grateful to you for taking the time, Tom.
0: Me too. It was really wonderful to talk to you.